Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. In addition to this podcast, please check out my latest book, Embracing Resistance to Change, Facilitating Change Differently Through the Paradox of Resistance, available now through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today I'm visiting with Scott Spradlin, who is a, um, first of all, he's just a dear friend. Uh, we've known each other for about, um, I don't know, eight years, seven, seven, eight, nine years maybe. Um, it's the, the time is a blur, but Scott <laughs> is a, um, he's a therapist, but that doesn't really kind of scratch the surface. He, um, he's a um social media uh, content expert. He um, is very engaged in the community. He integrates his mindfulness practice with um, just a, a compassion approach to mental health. And really the work he does is kind of grounded in um, cognitive behavior therapy. And in fact, that's, you've got a great book um, on that. And so what's it, and it, I think it's called Don't Let Your Emotions Run Your Life. Is that the title? That is the title, Jim. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and I'll I'll put that in the notes because it's it's okay. a great, it's a great book. It's very hands on. So, welcome, Scott. So, happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year to you too, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So, tell the tell the listeners just a little bit of, of your background, and then we'll just kind of j- dive right into kind of your philosophy and just the things that you've been doing because I know you've. You're, you're blogging, you are doing a lot of um, public speaking. And so you're really, um, you're, you're just really um, building your presence. Um, and so I, I, I think that's exciting. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, well, um, background wise, um, I'm a born and raised Wichita boy, Wichita, Kansas native. Uh, I've lived about the states here and there, spent a year in Northern Ireland and a gap year as a chaplain's assistant. And um, after finishing my graduate studies in counseling at Covenant Theological Seminary, I was in Portland, Oregon for a few years where I fell into cahoots with the Portland DBT program. And that is now evolved into the Portland DBT Institute. And um, if I haven't already said it, Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I did say that already. So not to be confused, Portland, Maine. Um, and that's now become the known as the uh, oldest freestanding DBT outpatient clinic in the United States. So that's kind of cool. And then that's where I got my start in dialectical behavior therapy, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy of the third wave variety, which means it's a mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was a really spoiled baby therapist who was able to complete his DBT intensive training in Seattle with Dr. Linehan, who is the founder of DBT, and her uh, colleague, Linda DeMeff, Dr. Linda DeMeff, who's now the director and I believe owner of Portland DBT Institute. I see her once in a while in some online trainings, and we're both a little grayer than we used to be. Um, And then uh, at present, um, I'm in practice at North Star Therapy with my wife, Mariah, where we've developed a standard comprehensive DBT program that goes under the flag of Wichita DBT. 
and a number of related programs and some adaptations that we're developing. Uh, as you mentioned, I published a book with New Harbinger Publications, the Don't Let Your Emotions Run Your Life, How DPT Can Put You in Control. And uh, I do have a blog. Uh, I blog at wisemindwiselife.com, which is my main uh, website, personal website. And then I'm also blogging under my name, Scott Spradlin, on Substack. I've been exploring that. Uh, and that's been a handy way for me to stay active and writing and uh, sharing that with uh, the public and you know connecting with some followers who their interest in turn keeps me excited about writing and uh, helps foster a little accountability to uh, keep up the efforts which can be really hard to keep it going so talk a little bit about this the idea of the dialectic behavior therapy and how is how is that kind of um evolved or or how is that really um I think it's a it, it's it's an exciting um, I don't know, methodology or modality. I'm not sure which is the right word in terms of of approaching mental health and and it's as we've seen from even before the pandemic, but certainly through the pandemic and post pandemic, um, there's never been a greater need for uh, for mental health um, services and professionals. Yeah, that, that's that's for sure. I mean, we uh, at this time, uh, Mariah and I, we, we still strictly do telehealth te services, which started through the pandemic. And uh, I don't think we've ever been busier. You know, we have a waiting list even. Uh, so we offer folks, uh, you know, referrals for outside if, if it's an urgent and eminent need uh, or if they prefer to send a waiting list to uh, typically if they're specifically looking to participate in our our DBT program. Uh, uh, DBT, which is again, the, you know, just for the listeners, that's short for dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, and, you know, just a brief history there is Dr. Marshall Linehan, um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be giving approximate dates because I don't have this history nailed down exactly, but I'd say at least by the, uh, certainly by the 80s, she was already underway with uh, cobbling DBT together. She was attempting to provide treatment for persons who presented with some extreme emotion dysregulation, um, who were probably could be, who would be classified by therapists as treatment resistant or complicated clinical presentations such as borderline personality disorder. Uh, and that was actually the um, identified population that she ended up really helping out with, uh, and I, it's not too big a way to put it, but really cracked the code on providing effective and compassionate therapy for folks that were um, finding themselves diagnosed with BPD. And she, over the years, being very much a behaviorist, uh, so very much into schedules of reinforcement and aversion and so on, had the empirically supported framework to help highly emotional and impulsive individuals. That didn't really work at first uh, because these folks wouldn't come back for therapy after their first one or two meetings. And she clued in on there seemed to be a reactivity, emotional reactivity, so intense that these folks may have been very uh, reactive to the experience of invalidation. And so she intuited that she wanted to build in, wanted to learn, first of all, not just not just build it in, but to learn um, 
radical acceptance. You know, she wanted to learn how do I come to these persons not pushing strictly change as, you know, many therapies do. I mean, that's to be expected, right? I mean, we go to therapy because something's not working or we want to reduce some emotional suffering. So we want to change, but they, but they wouldn't stick around for therapy. So this, she pursued that cultivating this acceptance side because behavioral therapy is very change oriented. You know, if we do X, Y, Z, and if we watch our environment, we build in reinforcers and we can, we can acquire new skills, new way of being, and so on. But if people don't stick around for therapy, therapy won't work. Um, so she ended up uh, basically, again, long story, super duper short. Uh, she's become a Zen master because she found that Zen meditation practices were helpful to her and her patients. And this really informed her importing of mindfulness into dbt so that's uh, the core skill in dbt is uh, well resides within what we call core mindfulness and wise mind so that's a word that you know because that's what we called our, our group our wise minders would meet together and that's where we where i you know from when from whence i appropriated that word um and so she began to synthesize sort of Zen acceptance practices with behavioral changes and those overlapping together. Uh, then this both, you know, a desire to uh, integrate, synthesize, and so on, looking for some framework uh, to get beyond the, the both and, I'm sorry, the either or to a both and. That's where she brought in the, you know, dialectical framework of both and. And so that, well, that talk, entails... Talk about that term. Talk about that yeah. term dialectic, dialectical. Mm -hmm. What about it? Just, yeah, what what does yeah. that, what's that really entail? Yes, yeah, dialectical uh, for DBT means that, um, for instance, we, well, what's encapsulated is a particular worldview that says, hey, look, um, reality is not static, it's dynamic, it's ever-changing. And parts interact with the whole, System systemically. Uh, so folks that might be familiar with systems theory, whether that's in family therapy or otherwise, would, would understand this, that we as human beings don't develop in a vacuum. You know, it's not a nature versus nurture thing that leads us to where we happen to be in our development, but an interaction between the two and we're constantly evolving and progressing through um, our interaction with the environment and our own emotions and thoughts and so on. So in part, it is that idea that, again, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? So we could say it's the law of non-summativity. It's synergistic. That's not language that DBT people use. That's something I've imported from uh, Stephen Covey for the leadership folks out there that probably follow you. But I love that that word. I think it's a, a vital and, um, you know, actually a very compatible word with what we do in dialectics. Um, it also entails within it, you know, this reality that there, that there is a real dialogue happening between patient and therapist. I, you know, that there is a real, uh, and, I'm, and now this is, again, this isn't something that I hear DBT people talking about, so I am going to kind of expand a little bit, but it, this is, a, but the Socratic method of teaching was dialectic and question and answer between instructor and student. And that the the idea that the teacher is affected and you know by the student as the student is affected by the teacher, 
And the dialectic is, of course, uh, very related to, in ancient philosophy, the engagement in debate. You know, uh, that there's a dialectical process that happens as we talk to one another, whether we're, you know, in some sort of, um, you know, opponent processing where we're just sort of learning and maybe a friendly debate or checks and balances or just, you know, kind of a general natural communication or or a formal, you know, old school debate. We present our arguments and then we look for, you know, maybe uh, the weaknesses in the other person's arguments, but also we might learn the, our own, our own weaknesses, our own limitations, our own limited point of view also. Um, and that there's a, a dialogos uh, that really happens uh, between persons, you know, and, and groups. And that's something that ensues. It just ensues through relationship. There's also built into that the somewhat Hege kind of Hegelian-influenced idea of the dialectic. You know, it's not promoting sort of a Hegelian Marxism or anything like that, but it's basically the idea that we do encounter this process of, uh, you know, thesis versus antithesis. And in the, you know, through that tension, interaction, dialogue, uh, and that dialogue happening in like embodied experience as well, not just words. Um, there's change that happens, and often, whether within a person or between persons, there's a synthesis of perspective or understanding uh, and skill building or reality, and then it, arriving to that new level uh, of understanding or insight or living, then gives rise to its own opposite. So now we repeat this process again, so there will be new dialectical tensions uh, between opposing forces. And so we also say that there's a, there's a polarity in reality, that we do encounter polarities regularly, and we are presented with many challenges on how to reconcile those, or if they can be reconciled. And how can we, through adopting a dialectical framework, we can become more psychologically flexible, but that way, in that, say, for example, it's best encapsulated or summarize even in the question that we ask, uh, what's being left out when I'm trying to understand a person or self or situation or reality? It's a reminder, I don't know everything. I don't, I can't know absolute truth in, in the sense of comprehensively. I'm a finite person. I know some things in my corner of reality and I know my perspective on that. But if I maintain the dialectical perspective, uh, I remain open to growth and input and uh, a, a willingness to learn and, and to grow. And I'll pause there for a minute, see if any of that made any sense. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that um, one of the authors that, that I share with my students, and we've used a couple of his uh, books, is Edgar Schein, who um, the, his, he's kind of the, the creator of process consulting. And he, he passed away about two years ago at like mm -hmm. 98. His son has kind of taken up the mantle, but one of his core principles is to assess your own ignorance. Oh, wow. And and that idea of what he calls humble inquiry. Yeah. And, and when you're entering in with helping an organization, um, it's very much about that helping relationship. Um, and, and there was even a book that came out a couple of years ago called... Um, um, Dialogic organizational development. Ooh, I like the sound of that. And so, um, yeah, I'll have to send you some information <laughs> on it, but because I really think that what you're talking about has such application to 
not only one-on-one -on -one therapy, but I, I can see it being effective with couples and group mm -hmm. dynamics and, and even yeah. larger um, organizational systems. And something else you said reminded me, I mean, of another book, um, The Shadow Effect by um, Deepak Chopra, um, oh. Debbie Ford, and uh, Marianne Williamson. The the three wrote the, the book called The Shadow Effect. And it very much talks about that. Um, the uh, the the uh, the polarity that that within ourselves that we have this polarity around so many of our you know the shadow effects so we might have something that we're uh, you know really gifted at but then there's there's kind of that blind side to it or mm -hmm. there might be something that is a behavior that's counterproductive for us but um, but at the same time it can have some some upside to it and I think I think about like. And this is something I know you have a strong expertise. We've had some great discussions on on ADHD. Oh yeah, particularly in adults, and how some of the things that are some of those challenges with somebody with with ADHD it can also then turn around and be their superpower. And so I I think of that when I think about the polarity part. And so um, yeah, I'm not sure where I was going with all that. I just kind of threw out a bunch of jumbled ideas all at once. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're just uh, having a chat. We're just having a little dialogos, I think. Yeah. But I like that. Um, and I think it was maybe it was um, um, who was the the therapist or the psychologist Carl Rogers who basically said talked about when we when we accept where we're at, that's really when we're able to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I would have a, a residence with DBT for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Just popped into my head when you were talking about that, and so. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, talk a little bit about your blog. What are what are some of the topics that you've that you've been really mm. passionate about that you've been writing about lately? Yeah. Um, well, uh, there are. I, th I think there's probably three three areas that have become uh, especially important to me. In general, uh, I would pop in with sort of real quick little videos on just kind of a quick reflection or just kind of saying hello to uh, those who are following and subscribing to the Substack. And, and writing generally about just any and all things uh, related to wisdom. You know, how can I how can I use this? I'm thinking how can I use this platform to promote the cultivation and appreciation of wisdom in the lives of others. Can I get others hooked on the idea, not just not get hooked on the idea, but to open themselves to wanting to pursue wisdom or cultivate wisdom in their own lives. So, you know, so that has a lot, that has a very, very implications, right? So uh, as far would, as the how three, how would, you Sorry, define, how would you define wisdom or, and, and kind of integrate that with, what what do you really mean by that the idea of a wise mind yeah well that that that, that term wise mind that comes to I'm, I'm lifting that directly out of dialectical behavior therapy so uh, for those who hear who may hear this who are familiar with that therapy definitely want to give credit where credit's due we have a construct in our mindfulness teaching that we observe and then we teach to our clients what 
And uh, in mindfulness, we encourage folks to cultivate their wise mind, which is, you know, we, we would have a Venn diagram and one, one circle is what we call reasonable mind. And that would represent the science aspects, if you will, the uh, left hemisphere, upper cortices kinds of ways of dealing with the world. So uh, how do we, you know, how we use lists, logic, being linear in our thinking, uh, discursive reasoning, all that super important. So uh, that's there. And then, the, then on the other circle, that's our, that's our emotion mind. And so DBT puts a big emphasis on, I'd say honoring the emotions while letting go of emotional suffering so that it's neither overly, it's not an overly rational therapy in terms of how we would construe that word traditionally, nor is it overly sentimental. So it's not just promoting this sort of, uh, just be emotional at all, you'll know, figure it out. It's a, it's a lot more truth than that. But it makes space for the emotions. As, as many of us know now, we're paying attention to fields like interpersonal neurobiology or polyvagal theory, uh, neuroscience attachment theory. Emotions are so important. Also, our ability to regulate our emotions and to uh, let them do for us what they're intended to do on a native, human, humanly native level, uh, we can live effective lives. And some of us come from histories, you know, racked with uh, trauma or invalidation. So uh, our physiological equipment doesn't quite uh, work all that well. So we experience our emotions with a lot of intensity. And we're, and we're prone to either do a lot of avoiding situations where we will be uh, tested. And so finding ourselves in some really bad habits uh, that have short-term benefit of avoiding anxiety and distress and so on, but uh, have uh, long-term negative consequences. And, and likewise, uh, you know, we might respond to situations disproportionately to what is happening factually. So we might be over overreacting, to put it very, you know, probably overly simplistically. Um, to... An emotion might in DBT isn't isn't simply okay. We have emotions. It's if we inhabit our emotion mind side of things too much, that's where we tend to be more impulsive or more avoidant, more dysregulated. So we're seeking integration. We're seeking integration, and if we can access wise mind, which isn't expected to ever be a twenty four hours a day, seven days a week kind of place to be. Uh, you know, sometimes we just, you know, but if we can go there, that's great. When we're integrating those two, when we find a balance between what, again, what we think of as sort of the left hemisphere and right hemisphere, uh, reason and emotion, that intersection is where we find wisdom. And so in our wise mind, we might say that it's when we experience that sort of flexible and grounded state. And that we, you know, even experience intuition or apprehend the nature of things a little more naturally without the complications of overthinking everything, uh, but also without overreacting or, or underreacting. So um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a deep place. It's a deep place for us to go. Uh, and now again, I'm, I'm qualifying this because I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm part of a, you know, a unofficial but larger family of DBT people uh, you know, so uh, when they hear this, if they were to hear this, I want to make sure they know I'm not misrepresenting DBT per se. But what I do with Wise Mind is, uh, you, you know, you know from my website, I call it Wise Mind Wise Life. Um, I'm really 
polling on that and I'm taking some liberties with that to go a little further. So with my clients in practice, whether it's four straight DBT or DBT informed therapy or other issues, it could even be couples. Uh, I asked them about their relationship to wisdom and I invite them to become philosophers and that, and I meaning uh, I invite them to become lovers of wisdom and we explore what that means. A lot of us know, we have a sense of what that means. What does it mean? Well, it means we, we probably have some experience, you know, as we've become older, our emotions are part of that, uh, consequences we've suffered, listening to others, reading, so on, depending on our stage of life. But I also, from that point of view, tell most of my clients, you know, like you, you, you do know how to live. You know how to live well if you're paying attention and when you're paying attention. So this is why mindfulness is so important. So the mindfulness practices we have in DBT are considered vehicles to help us cultivate that space of that state of mind that we call wise mind. Yeah, that's, yeah, kind of getting out of our own way. A lot of times, yeah, because, you know, again, we're, you know, so, so by the way, on that note, since we're just sort of riffing here, if that's okay with you, Jim, um, you know, it, I, I, when people are suffering, when I suffer, <laughs> now, I'm, and this isn't just for uh, you know folks that are can be labeled with the diagnoses, but when we suffer, it, it that tends to be a state of inattentiveness. That tends to be a state of uh, reactivity, uh, a living in thoughts rather than living in our embodied experiences. And so I think these are parts this is what's very helpful about mindfulness in general and the way we've the way it's the way it's been crafted in DBT is a very handy delivery system, makes it very practical. Um, and it doesn't even require meditation per se. I think two mindfulness and meditation are not you know the same thing, but they're but they're certainly related. But it's it seems empowering to my clients when they when I tell them I, I think that you have wisdom already. And you'll you'll see it, and you'll know it when you pay attention, which can come through. Uh, maybe I need skills to quiet my emotions, or uh, yeah, well, maybe my emotions yeah, are really strong, and it tends to fracture my attention. And yeah, then I, I start chasing all the varied thoughts in my head, which bring a lot of anxiety and confusion, and make it very difficult for me to just organize myself in the moment. And so, a lot of what we're doing is uh, with that is. Um, also, let's let go of your ideas of perfecting, perfecting the absolute right, absolute wrong thing in a given situation. You're a human being. You have to live. You're going to be fallible. And how are you? This is part of the why is my project and my my estimation and how I'm using it with my clients. Is that how are you embodying your values? You know, and and do you know how? Do you know and well back up a little more primary than that. Do you know what your values are? You know, a lot of times people don't know because they've been so busy surviving or they're on automatic pilot or they're, you know, they're living in FOMO or they're, you know, avoiding something all the time or they or they've um, haven't taken time to slow down to open their mind enough to say, I don't know everything. I, I probably could learn something um, and then to live live in a way that where I inhabit my body, which is really key. I'll stop there. I've been going on a bit. Thanks again for listening, Jim. No, no. Um, you mentioned something um, about the, uh, like some of the strategies that that we can come up with that are that might be effective in the short term, but are 
counterproductive in the longer term. Can you can you share an example of that or, or talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we can use um, we can use the digital world as as an example. Um, a lot of folks. Yeah, I'm not even going to pick on just strictly young people because I think we're all in the same boat. I think digital natives, I think it's a lot more pronounced for them. I feel anxious if I don't have my mobile phone near me, my mobile phone. I'm getting old. My my smartphone. I don't have my smartphone handy. I feel, I'll feel anxious. What's happening on my smartphone? Uh, so I, I'd say smartphone, I don't even know what to call it, use or consumption. Um Gaming, excessive gaming, I think is uh, something that you know feels great, feels awesome for a lot of people. They, when they're in that world, they know how things work, they know the rules, they're they're accomplished. It's actually a social uh, event in a lot of ways because they're playing with other folks from around the world, right? Um, so that feels great. You know, your dopamine is really active, serotonin is activated. Here's my community, but then when I unplug and then I come back to mom, dad, the school, wife, kids, you know, whatever it is here in the three, you know, three dimensions. Um, I'm not really sure how to do that. And I have to deal with a crying baby or I have to deal with a teacher who's giving me you know, critical feedback or uh, I have to face defeat and know how to stand up and get going again. But anyway, so it could be gaming. Uh, it could be Facebook. It could be shopping. It could be online pornography. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of consumption of commodified, you know, uh, sex these days. So uh, all these things, it could be online gambling, could be cigarettes, excessive eating. And all of those behaviors, by the way, as I'm saying it, because to, to your point, sorry for meandering so much. No, to no, your point, is... to your point, you know, all of these things uh, they have they they all have a kernel of wisdom in them because they all have a way of helping us to focus. They have a way of downregulating our physiology when we feel upset, and to find a baseline. And and there, you know, and so we would say, you know what, this this is wise, you know. We all want to be able to find that baseline. We all want to belong. We all want to feel competent. And um, so we get that short term or, or we want validation. You know, and so sometimes when folks are, for instance, um, maybe caught in the kind of suicidal worldview, maybe they're not necessarily actively planning or intending to suicide, but they can sometimes live their way into um having suicidal, having the communication of suicidal ideation as a way of connecting with others because it often will elicit functional validation from other folks who, who will at those moments and now, now people are slowing down to take it, you know, take notice and to connect with me where they don't in the, you know, day to day. And there's a whole big backstory behind that. It's not that any of these, any of us will have like some major character flaw that's driving that. There's a, you know, a whole bunch of, history of invalidation, lack of skills and uh, insight and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so those would be some examples. I mean, it could be all kinds of things that makes me, that kind of give me that sense of like, whew, I'm back to my baseline. I'm okay. Yeah. And so there's things that you can do that, that are self-soothing that can be effective in the short term, but are counterproductive in the longer term. And uh, yeah, and I think that, one of the things this is goes back to your book, you know, the don't let your emotions uh, run your life. But the idea of someone told me this phrase 
years ago and I was just, I was like, I had no idea what they meant. <laughs> and so I had to go read a bunch about it, but they were like learning to sit with your emotions. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And so I, you know, the, the, the academic in me was like, I'm going to go read. <laughs> yeah. I'm going I'm yeah. to find some books. I'm going to find some articles. And, right. yeah, and that idea that being able to sit with your emotions and not necessarily have to um, turn to, to um, you know, the unhealthy coping strategy um, or something that is counterproductive in the longer term. And just that's where that mindfulness part comes in, too, of just being aware of where you're at in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, the difference between, you know, thinking about what's, you know, what, what thinking about sitting with your emotions versus simply sitting with your emotions. And by yeah. the way, I mean, that's another element of, you know, DBT, you know, um, one of our set of skills in our mindfulness repertoire is called participation, you know, practicing, participating in the present moment with whatever's happening, whether it's a horrifically boring faculty meeting or, um, you know, you're in a class with a monotone professor or traffic, or you're on a date that you really wish you hadn't, you know, agreed to, um, you know, just, you know, there, there's a value in just being there. You know, and thinking about it, I mean, you can still have preferences, of course, and you connect with your values. What's the wisest, you know, um, if, if we find somebody is not really for us uh, after the first date, yeah, maybe we don't go on a second date. You know, that, that's okay. That's, a, that's not a, a terrible commentary on them or us. That's just, you know, uh, that might be listening to wisdom. But, you know, they, like, for instance, you know, eating, even when I'm eating food, you know, do my I tasting it? Do I, do I feel the texture of the food? Do I take in the aromas and the color? Do I see the colors? So whatever senses I have available to me, my you know, am I really there with it? Or like right now, you know, Jim, we, you know, both of us, uh, we're here, we're here. I'm I'm here, <laughs> you know. But we might get distracted by internal thoughts, or you know, thinking, or we might be worried about. Oh well, I sure hope uh, hope Jim is interested in what I'm saying. I wonder if he's really interested or not, or you know, what, it, what will his listeners think about what I'm saying? Oh, well, now I'm too much that for me, that would be too much thinking. I'm thinking about our conversation here rather than just simply having our conversation. So participating is very important. Yeah, it's that it's that balance because, um, you know, I, I wrote a blog about overthinking and I've had students talk about that's something they struggle with overthinking. Um, but mm -hmm. I think that there's the other extreme of that of underthinking of not thinking at all. Um, that is um, just as um, dysfunctional or, or um, counterproductive. And so um, it's kind of like I had somebody, I was talking about emotional intelligence in the workplace and, and somebody made the comment about, well, emotions should just be left out of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, you know what we call somebody that has no emotions that's completely able to shut off all their emotions and like we call them a, a sociopath yeah so um so yeah we are emotional beings but that doesn't mean that we have to be ruled by our emotions
Yeah, you know, this is the thing is, uh, this is something I, I appreciate about the, you know, about DBT as a therapy and this idea of, uh, you know, dialectic, I, I would say, and, 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 and this is my, one of my new favorite phrases to put out to my clients who's like, I, I reserve the right to edit my comments later <laughs> based on any new information I have or I'll change my mind. But I, I would say, you know, the dialectical model really, because it's a, a holistic, really, you know, systemic, holistic, um, you know, it's helpful to um, kind of rediscover uh, it, we're, pre pre <laughs> Cartesian, you know, way of being, you know, Descartes um, it had a big influence on in the way we think about that separation of, I think thinking the mind and versus the emotions and um, there's kind of a dualism there that's kind of lingered with us for a while, but it's really lovely to see so much science, um, even scientific inquiry moving forward. Uh, like say with Dan Siegel's work in interpersonal neurobiology and mindsight and his consilient model, again, affirming the mind per se, but the mind is an embodied process, you know, so it involves my body also and my relationships. I don't have a mind without relationships to other human beings. I don't have a mind without a body. And this, you know, I mentioned before we went on for recording, I was talking about John Verveke, uh, you know, in, in his work in the meaning crisis, you know, he's a cognitive scientist and I don't know a lot about this particular theory yet because I'm just discovering it, but I am really enamored uh, with what I've heard so far, you know, he's a, a 4E cognitive scientist. And so the a 4E cognitive model, it means that, you know, cognition involves um, embodiment, uh, embed, embed, embedded, you know, we're embedded in a context, a culture, a family, home, and so on. Um, and cognition is enacted. So we do stuff. Uh, and then it's extended. We have extended uh, cognition which I, if I, you know, you'll love to uh, encourage you and others to check it out, make sure I got this part right. But I think that has to do with not only thinking ahead, but it's my way of, you know, sharing cognition with you, Jim, you and I together, you know, we, you know, we kind of kind of kind of shared uh, cognitive, you know, so we learn together as we relate together, but there's no, uh, so there's a, a less of a tendency to separate, uh, kind of going, let me pause for a moment, because something that I'm, I'm thinking about is, um, I think it's absolutely important for all of us to pay attention, practice, you know, mindfulness in some format, self-awareness, self-reflection, know yourself. Because if you don't know yourself, then that's a really scary way to live life. And I think that means then we learn to be, we befriend our emotions. We're also befriending and living in our bodies. So we don't ignore the body. This is, by the way, just incidentally, this is why with a lot, of, well, all my clients, I, I, I even find out like as part of my intake process, are you willing, if you're not presently exercising regularly, are you willing to start? Because if you're not, if you're not moving your body, um, you're not going to be well. You're not going to be a healthy person. So, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's something that gets dialogued. I don't want to sound, you know, cause it's not all or nothing, it's not all or nothing, but this is something I want my clients to do. It's like, we're not talking about swimming five miles a day or, you know, bench pressing big heavy weights. Just mean 
you have to move in a way that challenges your body every day because your body wants to be challenged and it's good for your mental clarity because all these things are connected. And then as goes mental clarity, I, I wanted to add this because I think maybe that's what you're getting at is don't fear hard thinking. It's, it's, I think that there is a value in uh, maybe cultivating what we think of as more traditional and you know intellectual capability. Do the scholarship. Be as scholarly as you can be that's appropriate to your life. If you're a student, be open to being scholarly. You know, there's, there's, read the articles, uh, read the journals, read the books. Uh, you you will be uh, you'll be a better person for it in a lot of ways. You'll be more satisfied with life, I think. Now, don't just I, go I, for headlines or chat GPT uh, entries and all that stuff. Yeah, that idea that the ignorance is bliss is very um, short-term thinking and very um, yeah, very counterproductive in the longer term. So let me let me. Let me ask you this. So, um, cause you kind of mentioned your statement that you like about that you reserve the right to, to change your, um, how, how did you say change your, um, feedback or your change? change I can change my mind, change your mind. So I, I, I say I'm editable. I'm editable. <laughs> so when you th think about like, um, like in a, in a first session with a, with a client or, or maybe a first session with a couple or even a, even a group, what's, what's some of your, your go-to questions? And maybe what are some, opening go what are some of my opening questions with a, like yeah. a new client? Yeah. You know, I open uh, a lot of my sessions with some uh, small talk icebreakers. Cause I want people to feel safe. I want to connect first. And not just roll in with the checklist. And a lot, you know, and um, if they've been in therapy before, uh, that's something that they may have experienced before. Oh God, now I gotta tell this person, you know, my deep dark secrets, uh, what's unflattering about me. I tend to, you know, without getting all the details of that, because we won't have time enough. Be, I think that would, I would, I would be bored with it. So surely you would be <laughs> right now, anyway. Uh, but just, you know, I, I just, I let them know. Hey, I'm, I'm gonna just. I just want to get to know you for a minute. You know, I'll, I'll see what town they're from. Say, you know, I see people from all around Kansas now with telehealth. So people could be in Kansas City area. They might be in Topeka, which uh, they might be in a small town. Um, you know, after I look at their, you know, intake paperwork, oh, so it looks like, you know, you you do this particular job. How, how is that? Do you like that? Is that something you meant to do? And okay, what's that community like that you live in? You know, uh, oh, I see you went to so-and-so university. That's cool. You know, how, how was that? You know, uh, uh you know, what kind of, you know, depending on how it goes, I might, you know, you, you, you kind of vibe spontaneously a little bit. I'll ask people like, well, what kind of movies do you like? And what, what kind of mu music are you into? And are you an artsy person or uh, oh, you're a carpenter? Man, that's cool. My dad was a carpenter, you know, so I, yeah. Oh man, that's a lot of skill. and Building rapport um, and connection. Yeah. And, and yeah. Trust. I really, and, and it helps me kind of get, and then that way we can kind of just, and, and then I also just explicitly say, look, if we get in, if I, touch on anything today that you don't want to talk about as of yet that's okay with me this is not an interrogation i literally say this is not an interrogation uh it is it's an interview of course you know this is a meeting but we're, we're human beings and although i'm a licensed professional who's has all kinds of things i'm supposed to do we're still human beings you, you know you don't know me um so i want to make sure you feel cool about telling me now 
but I tell them I'm, I'm still going to like, you know, hit some checklist points along the way because I, I have to, you know, to be, uh, make sure I'm in a, in an appropriate diagnostic wheelhouse and that, you know, I'm understanding what their goals are for therapy. Yeah. So those would be some things I would, you know, talking about up front. I mean, just as far as like breaking the ice and so forth. And then if they're coming in for DBT, you know, some of the things we're doing, we, we do a whole pre-treatment phase. I mean, just because you're referred uh, by somebody or you're investigating, um, that, that doesn't mean that you're going to, to qualify, you know, for the program per se, because it's a big, it's a big commitment on the part of the client. You know, and so, and I've, I've, ex I've expanded that to uh, other therapy, uh, you know, like I, not, I don't do all things DBT. There's some things I do, but they're very DBT influenced because I really feel that I, I, I'm interested in working with clients who are interested in doing some work and, and not just having expensive conversations, um, every week. Yeah, I've, I've shared that information with students when they've talked about like um, getting into consulting and doing, you know, organization development consulting or, or management consulting is that yeah. it's, it's a, it's a fit that you're looking for. And so not all, not all clients are the right clients for you. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's a matter of finding um, the, the right relationship. And it goes back to really being clear on your own values. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and and recognizing that um that they're willing to put in the the work based upon your you know your approach and not trying to be all things yeah. to all people right right because you know i mean there uh, you know that's something else we talk about in the first one to three sessions is like hey i look you know um you know i try to use a little bit of humor in my therapy too you know so initially i'm saying look i i think i'm an above average therapist i'm at least above average uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm for you. I'm not for everybody, you know. So if at any point you don't feel like I'm the guy, hey, there are loads of therapists out there. Uh, maybe you know who they are, or I can give you a list of people to reach out to. So and um, it won't hurt my feelings, you know. Like if it's like, yeah, this uh, maybe you're not the guy, you know. Um, and you know we we can still shout because that we're also that's also very empowering for clients because then it's you know you you have a choice. I mean you you get to choose. Uh, you know, what you want to do and all that kind of thing. Then I, as a therapist, I also, I, I have um, some prerogatives, you know, that I, I want to work with folks who are interested in building a life worth living. That's a very DBT thing to say, by the way, because that, that is the punchline of DBT. It, you know, it is uh, a life worth living program. So if you're actively trying to build a life worth living, or if it's a couple, and this is, I'm becoming more, more, more skilled in this one all the time too, because Partners though are not always on the same page when they come to couples therapy. Really? Um, uh, yes, I know you're very surprised by that, Jim. <laughs> I can tell by the tone of your voice. So I, I so I'm find, you know, finding ways to really connect with both partners and say, hey, look, I'm really not, I don't really even want to get started unless both of you are like, I really you know, like I want to be here. Um, and you know, this is going to be about uh, us. We're going to be in this together. And I want to know up front, like, is, is this a are, are you here to improve the marriage? Is there some repair work that needs to be done? Or is, is it already too late? I don't know. Because, you know, a lot of times couples come to therapy. Um, by the time they get to therapy, there's already um, quite a bit of uh, loneliness or damage or, you know, parallel lives. that uh, There's a chasm that can't be breached. So, um, 
you know, just want to find out about that. And then are you both open to um, learn? You know, do you, how do you feel about wisdom? How do you feel about becoming a wise couple? Um, so that's another one of my, so, so you know, we can talk about that for just a brief moment. Uh, Jim, you might think that, oh, I don't, I should send it to you so you can share it with Terry. I have developed a handout that expresses uh, what a WTF marriage looks like. WTF marriage. Yeah, yeah. It's a Scott Spradlin's WTF marriage um, handout. And basically what I was doing is working with a few concepts of, you know, being influenced by DBT and mindfulness. Uh, I think it's really important for folks to have will a willingness. Willingness is this sort of disposition uh, of, of being, again, open to learning, uh, to to really to having that humility that you were talking about earlier, that I don't I don't know everything and that I can learn and grow, and and to tap my values. So, for instance, I, if I'm a spouse, if I'm a husband or a wife, uh, who is uh, you know I, I, you know maybe maybe we're fighting a lot, maybe we say mean things to each other, but deep 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 inside, that's not really what I want to say. I really want to be saying something like I'm just really scared and I'm taking it out on you and I don't know what to do, and I'm sorry. What I really want to say is I love you, and instead I'm blaming you for all of my irritations. You know that, and that's that's just my emotion mind driving everything. Uh, so, if we can if we can all step into this willingness bubble together and say, yeah, I'm I'm open to learn to looking at myself. Um, and, and in this framework, by the way, Jim, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm, I always bring him up because he's like my only leadership guy that I really know. But the Stephen Covey material. <laughs> Um, I, I like the way he posits the four human endowments of self-awareness, conscience, independent will, and creative imagination. So I bring those into my therapy with couples and say, you know, th these are hallmarks that I, you know, would like you all to be open to, um, you know, cultivating and to be mindful that you have these endowments to change things for the better. You know, are you both willing to be be responsible for yourselves so that you can, you know, uh, have a more meaningful and wise marriage. So the WTF, before we figure out what that is, before it gets too late, <laughs> uh, basically it's it's out of a, uh, I don't know uh, how to put it, within that circle or that, that environment of willingness, I'm asking clients to um, just in terms of relation, be relational, be with your partner, that's the W, be with them. Not not just by mailing address, but you know, be with them when they're with you. Be present to them, so the mindfulness can be expressed in this way. Also, uh, be be with them, and when they're with you, with you, you know, be with each other. You know, be be you know, we're we're a team, we're a community, we're a family. And what can I do, uh, you know, to contribute to? This? So that's the the W is be be with. Uh, the T is be toward one another be two i borrowed the idea from uh, a french feminist philosopher named luce aragray who wrote a book called i love to you or at least has a phrase i love to you which i think is really great because it means i I'm, I'm towards you this really lines up too with a lot of contemporary interpersonal neurobiology what does it mean for me to be present to you to my partner 
and not be guarded, not be relating to my thoughts about you, but to be here with you, meeting you, whether I'm excited, uh, in love, angry, irritated, fearful, embarrassed, you know, uh, but I'm going to be turned and be turned towards you. And that means, again, in terms of, um, you know, our, our shared life together, when we're, when I come home and you're there uh, and you say, hey, honey, how, how was your day? Welcome home. Then I'm going to turn towards you and say, oh, it was terrible or or it was fabulous. And I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad to see you. Uh, let me change my clothes and get a drink of water and let's talk. And then we're talking to each other, but we're not holding our phones while we're talking to each other. We don't have a monitor on. We are just, you know what, maybe we're stirring soup together while we make a dinner together or something, but we're really listening. So there's the width and the two, uh, and, and my energies are toward you. Uh, so in other words, I'm vulnerable in, in terms of being open to you, open to, um, you know, disclosing myself, you know, to, to you as my partner. The, the, and then the F, so we've got WT, the WTF is filled by the, I, I'm for you. I'm going to be for my partner. I'm rooting that. for you. I'm rooting for you. I want you to be successful in whatever that means to you. Uh, how do I bring value to your life? How do I contribute to your sense of well-being in the world? And how do I, how, how can I be for you in a way that you experience mattering, that you, that you matter, you know? Um, so that's, that's the WTF. I want to be with, to, and for my spouse. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's a, a great um, mnemonic device for, yeah. Yeah. So that's another question I asked some couples nowadays. How would you like to have a WTF marriage? And they're like, whoa, you know, because, you know, we all know what they're thinking. <laughs> uh, WTF, oh, man, WTF. Attention, yeah. attention getter. Yeah, it was kind of accidental. I remember posting it. I came up with it and I, I put it all together. And I said something on Facebook, uh, public, uh, like to all the friends. And Mariah was uh, my wife, Mariah, for the listeners. You know, she's like, honey, why are you cussing online? <laughs> and then she went back, oh, oh, I see. Oh, that's very clever. Okay, great, great, great. But it, but it seems to get people's uh, imagination, you know, um, I want to try to encourage folks to, you know, get, get outside of your your patterns because a lot of your, if you're miserable, a lot of your misery is about um, your attachment to your story at present or your ideas or your thoughts, you know, and you're, um, you're, not, you're not looking outside of that. And it's very easy to become, you know, self-defensive and, self-encapsulated. And so a lot of ways, this all this business about mindfulness, wise mind, whether you're doing full DBT or, you know, you're trying to be a wise couple or you're an adult, uh, you know, working on your ADHD stuff, you know, um, mindfulness practices help us to, to love. I mean, we can't, and this goes, I think we said, I think it might have said this at the beginning of our, our meandering chat here, which I'm loving. Uh, you know, is that I, I can't I can't love others if I'm not paying attention. I can't love you, Jim, unless I'm paying attention. I can't do it accidentally. It, it requires intention. Uh, I have to know. I have to know that I'm loving, and then I embody love. I can't just think love. Oh yeah, I have loving thoughts to my friends and my mom and my wife, but I'm never around or never out. You know, reaching out or responding to their outreach, or I'm turned away rather than uh, to. You know, then, um, 
yeah, then that's it's hard for me to say I love these people. So it's hard to it's hard to accidentally be um, self aware and content, and it's hard to uh, accidentally build a great team or or build a a, a a positive work culture. All of it, Jim. Yeah, and even this. I mean, the the you know program I spoke at this weekend. It was at uh, you, you know it was in a religious context. Um, you, even there, it's to say you know for those of us who are cultivating a, a you know a faith walk. You you can't really you know I'm you know in a Christian context for example you cannot have a relationship with God by accident I mean not not if you're participating in it but uh, you're you're uh, this you know this is a big loaded conversation that we you know get really super duper unpack maybe another time if that if it's ever of interest to anybody but I think enough of us are resonant with it it doesn't have to it isn't just for Christians it's for anybody it could be for folks that are like I I'm the person who's drinking kombucha and I'm eating vegan and I'm meditating, you know, all of this. Well, uh, what, you know, what's driving all that, you know, is it to, uh, what, how do you, how do you embody, you know, again, your values. And so like with, for Christian folks, um, thinking about God is not loving God. Thinking about loving your neighbor is not the same as loving your neighbor. Um, you know, uh, cultivating what, you know, for those who are familiar with the New Testament, you're going to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, which include kindness, self-control, and, uh, you know, patience and things like that. Uh, you, you have to practice those things. You need, So you need tools. You need tools to uh, move toward that. You know, I think, in, and I think in the mindfulness world, uh, writ large, and I'm a mindfulness fan, so I'm not putting that down. And I'm definitely not, I don't have any judgments about folks, you know, in general or in particular on this matter, but um, I, I think there are a lot of folks who are doing with mindfulness now is what they've done with Christianity or other forms of Buddhism. You know, they've kind of uh, consumerized it and, and they're not digging in deep with real general intention and then looking for ways to really embody love and even sacrifice. You know, how, how do I put, how do I put aside some of my own selfishness, you know, to, uh, you know, better love others and rather than treating either Jesus or mindfulness as a way to build my um, ego's portfolio. Yeah, the thought just popped into my head that uh, that life is very much a, a participant sport. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. And I'm still trying to practice it every day. It's some days I don't want to participate. Uh, you know, just we're all in the same boat together. We're all we're all you know, uh, so um, I'm sure I'm certainly not. I hope I don't sound to anybody like I've really got it all figured out. I have some lots of insights that I'm trying to put into practice. And I, and I know it, it is hard. It's hard work. It's hard to, uh, you know, consistently love people. It's hard to love people when we're also fed a lot of scripts over and over again that, you know, life is really about you and your happiness and uh, whatever, you know, your well-being is. And uh you know, so I think a lot of people do cut and run from friendships or communities or, you know, marriages and um, and even their family relationships, you know, a little prematurely because they're, um, I don't know, I, again, I could be edited later. So keep that in mind. Everybody. But, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we're, we're very much encouraged to be narcissists in our culture. Yeah, very so we much. want to be very careful about that. I think it's very, and, and it's just so prevalent that I, I think a lot of times we wouldn't even know because we're just, you know, we, if we're, um, it's just, it, it's in the air. <laughs>
yeah, that self-absorption mm -hmm. is, is it's, um, it's kind of the opposite of, of self-awareness. Yeah. 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 Then that's, that's a whole interesting thing too. You know, the way that mindfulness is different than just simple self-absorption, you know, Oh, I'm already self-absorbed, but people are encouraging me to pay attention to myself. Isn't that uh, contradictory? Well, it's a, it's a different kind of paying attention. Well, Scott, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been really fun catching up. And so I um, appreciate your, your wisdom, your wise mind, your um, compassion and passion for what you do. And uh, I, I look forward to when we can um, have a cup of coffee in person and not just virtually, but. Uh, oh yeah, that'll be Mariah, great. Tell Mariah we said hello and um, give her a hug. And you tell Terry hello. We love you guys. We miss you. And thanks for having me on, man. I, I you know, I hope it'll be, um, I, I'm always interested in just shooting the breeze with you. I hope that it's uh, interesting for your uh, listeners and students also. And you, yeah, you keep I, up I the good work. A, I think it'll be a great episode. So uh, I will, um, I'll, I'll, um, contact you when I, when I post it. So that'll be happening okay. soon. So. All right. Great, Scott, well, thank, thanks for having me on again. It's so good. It was good to visit with you today. Yeah. It's good catching up. Happy new year. Happy new year. Bye. Bye for now. I hope you've enjoyed listening to chatting about change with Dr. Jim Maddox. If you want to connect more, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and at my website, drjimmaddox.com. Thanks for listening.